Amen. While our kids are heading off to Children's Church, I invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, would you take them out, turn them on, uh, and would you join me in the Gospel of Luke, the very last chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, as we are going to continue on in our look at the testimonies of those who were eyewitnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is there a time in your life when you've been truly stunned? I mean, stunned even maybe to the point of just being paralyzed, not knowing what to do. Maybe you witnessed a car accident or even uh, a traumatic event. Or maybe there was a moment in your life when you were so overwhelmed with joy that you didn't know what to do next. On two separate occasions in my life, I've been privileged once while I was in high school and once when I was out of high school as I was invited back to MC my high school, Clarksville High School's uh, annual beauty pageant. And so I got to be there, introduce and, and joke and uh, MC the event, but the exciting part is always the last event of the evening, which is the announcing of the winner. And so though I stand there and I have the, the envelope in my hand that has the name in it, there is, are 16 girls to my right, anticipating and longing, hoping that their name is the one that gets called. And when I open that envelope and I read that name, and maybe you've seen it on um, Miss USA or Miss America, and that name gets read and the camera zooms in on that, that winner, what does she do? She freezes. Because even in that moment, there is this joy, and there is this disbelief, and there is this shock, and there is this awe, and almost like in front of millions of people on stage or hundreds of people in an auditorium, she's stuck like a deer in a headlight. Did he really just say my name? We've all been potentially witnesses to that. Maybe we've had those moments in our lives. Maybe, like I said a minute ago, there are those moments in your life where you've been stunned into inactivity because you cannot genuinely believe what is happening in front of you because it is just so tragic or traumatic. If you've been in high school, there were a couple of opportunities. I'd walk down the hall and there would be two people and immediately a fight would break out and I wouldn't know what to do other than to withdraw. We are people who are easily paralyzed and left standing still and stunned, whether it be because we're overwhelmed with joy, but it can also be because we're overwhelmed with fear. And it can also be that we don't know what to do because the last time we tried it, we failed. And it's very easy for us to be people who are overwhelmed by both our fear and our failure, and we can be easily paralyzed. We're unable to enter a new relationship because we've been betrayed and we've been hurt in the past. We're afraid to speak up and speak into somebody else's life because we know the secret sins that are in ours and the last thing that we want is for the tables to turn on us. We're afraid to try something new as a body of believers because it's unfamiliar or it's uncomfortable. We can't bring ourselves to take the next step in our faith because we don't think that we've got everything figured out yet. We can be easily paralyzed by that fear and that failure, but paralysis is detrimental to life. A deer that's standing paralyzed in the headlights is in mortal danger, though he or she may not actually know it. 
A person that's lying stagnant in a bed is vulnerable to disease and decay if they're not properly moved and cared for. A car left in a yard is going to rust and refuse to run. A church that isn't willing to grow and change is a church that dies. Because living things change. Living things grow. Only dead things stay the same. And so we must take seriously the paralysis that so easily comes over us because of our fear and and our failure. But unfortunately, we have no power to overcome that fear and that failure and what it is that would leave us stunned and stagnant and paralyzed in fear. And the good news for us this morning from the passage of Scripture that we are going to be reading is that Christ's presence is what frees us from the failures and the fears that would leave us paralyzed. Though we are people who are prone to be paralyzed by our fears and our failures, Jesus Christ is more powerful than those things that would leave us frozen. And that's exactly what happens in Luke chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, look with me in verse 36. We'll pick up from where we left off last week as Luke writes this. As the disciples were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat here? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Would you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. Word that is an encouragement. Because heavenly Father, it can be so easy for us sometimes to look at your first generation of disciples and say, I could never possibly be like that. Those super Christians who saw you, who heard from you, who did such powerful and amazing things. Heavenly Father, I could never be like them. I thank you for the message this morning that they were actually just like us. They couldn't be those things either, not on their own. But the grace and the mercy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which you authored from eternity past, which you brought to fulfillment in your son Jesus Christ, that Heavenly Father... That same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That same promise, Heavenly Father, that so enlivened that first generation of Christians is available to us today. The same message that they proclaimed, a message that was rooted in the word of God and the word of your witnesses is exactly what we have and the tools that are in our shed as well. If we would just take them on faith, pick them up, put them to use in your power, Heavenly Father, you will do amazing things. So I pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning with your word, that you would draw us near to you into a deeper dependence upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and a less and less and less of a dependence on ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
and amen. Over the last few weeks, we have been looking at the accounts, as I said, of the eyewitnesses, both to Christ's crucifixion, his burial. We started with John's account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on Palm Sunday. And then we have begun looking at the eyewitness testimonies of those individuals who saw him raised from the dead. And what we have seen in each of those encounters is that the presence of Jesus Christ transforms not the circumstances of the individuals, but the individuals inside of the circumstances. When Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene at the graveyard that day, he took her grief and he transformed it into joy. When he met the two disciples traveling on the road to Emmaus, he took their hopelessness and turned it into hope. This morning... As we see the ten and others gathered together, picking up where we left off last week, we see that Jesus takes the paralysis of these disciples who are locked in a room because of their fear and potentially their failure, overwhelmed by the news that they have heard and still questioning whether or not it's valid. Jesus steps into their life to speak peace and give them a purpose and to give them power. First thing that we see in verses 36 through 43 is that Jesus' presence produces his peace. Each and every week when you and I gather in this place, we gather together for the express purpose of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, praising the Lord, preaching salvation in his name. We proclaim every Sunday as an Easter Sunday, we proclaim the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We believe it, amen? Amen. It's not just words on a page. It is a reality throughout history. It is something that is verified and it is something that is true. We read about it. We sing about it. We teach about it. We pray it. We believe it. We remember it in the taking of the Lord's Supper. But can I ask you just an honest question this morning? If Jesus suddenly appeared standing right there behind me this morning, what would be your response? Maybe your response this morning is, oh, I would just be elated, Pastor, and I would run and I would fall at his feet and I would just worship him and that would be amazing. And if that's you, my hat's off to you. Because I could be real honest, if I'm real honest, what would happen to me in that moment is I would be so overwhelmed by a flood of emotions that I really wouldn't know what to do. On the first hand, I would be launched on this emotional roller coaster, emotional, wow, that's hard to get out. An emotional roller coaster, starting with shock. All of a sudden, someone immediately appears next to me, behind me. And I would be shocked at the sudden appearance of this individual out of thin air. I would likely in that moment ask if maybe I ate something bad last night and it's messing with my brain. And I would question my own sanity at the appearance of this person next to me. But then I might actually question and have that moment of pause where I would say, Is it really Jesus? And then I would immediately feel guilty for asking that question at all. And I would potentially maybe feel a sense of shame and a desire to hide because I know all the secret sins in myself that you don't, that he does. And I would want to pull back. That's exactly where we meet these disciples. They had celebrated him on Palm Sunday. They had cheered him on as he battled with the leaders in the temple. And then they'd run for the hills, abandoning him into the hands of the people who were going to beat him, try him, hang him on a cross, murder him. They're now afraid because the body is missing, and who's going to come looking for them but these Jewish rulers? Maybe it's a hoax on their part to 
convince the world that they're playing some kind of messianic trick. And so we're next. And in the middle of this locked room, John tells us, immediately Jesus appears as easily in the middle of them as he disappeared earlier that day from the two as they were breaking bread at the dinner table in Emmaus. And the disciples are shocked and they don't know whether or not to believe this is real and they're overcome with joy in this flood of emotions. Is it really him? Is it not? What's going on? Is it a ghost? And Jesus has to then come into this moment and he begins to minister to them. He doesn't rebuke them. Instead, he offers himself to them. Here are my hands. Here are my feet. Give me a piece of fish because after all, a ghost can't consume food. And he proves himself willingly to these, his faithful followers. Despite what some of us would believe, the disciples weren't fools easily duped by a trickster, nor nor were they fanatics quick to fall in love with a phantom. They were men and they were women like you and me. They knew the finality of death and they were in fact repeatedly rebuked by Jesus in this passage of scripture for their resistance in belief, their hesitance to accept what was right in front of them. The story in the Bible and the gospel is neither farce nor fable. Instead, it's a factual account of the greatest miracle that has ever taken place on the face of the earth. This one who was God, clothed in human flesh, died, was buried, and came back to life. There's no reason to doubt it. It's confirmed by the witnesses. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus really did rise from the dead. But what is, so pas- what is so beautiful and what is so powerful in this passage of Scripture is that Jesus is concerned about far more than the disciples or our intellectual uncertainties. As Jesus enters into their presence, Jesus aims his word not at their heads but instead their hearts. Imagine what they're going through in that moment, that flood of emotions that is overwhelming them as they're paralyzed in both fear and also in their failure and in their disbelief. They're a bundle of anxiety and doubt and terror and guilt, hope, joy, love, all of this flood of emotion. And into that chaotic swell, Jesus says, peace. Peace to you. He knows the condition of their hearts and he speaks directly to it. And this peace is not a peace that is some meditative calm that we can get through yoga or some Eastern religious practice. It's not some self-righteous wish of some inebriated hippie given the peace sign. And it's much more meaningful than the lull of hostilities between two individuals or even two nations. The peace that Jesus speaks over his disciples right here is a promise that has resonated and been present in the Old Testament for generations. It's a declaration of salvation. It's a declaration of Sabbath rest. It is a declaration of restoration. The peace that's promised by God to all of his people throughout the Old Testament and that's ultimately accomplished by the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection is the end of all hostility. It's the victory over all of our enemies and it's the end of our struggle to make God happy or keep God happy. One commentator, Don Carson, in his commentary on John where we see this phrase also happen, Don Carson tells us that Jesus' word of peace in this moment is the complement to Jesus' declaration that it is finished on the cross. 
See, Jesus accomplished our peace on the cross. He makes it available in the resurrection. It's finished on the cross. It's freely given in the resurrection. And so Jesus comes to these disciples and he says to rebels and runners, betrayers and backsliders, the failure and the fearful, he says, peace to you. Lay down your arms. Stop trying and just rest. There's no reason to hide anymore because of your fears or your failures. Instead, there's an open invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No matter where you are, no matter what you're experiencing, you are invited by Jesus Christ himself to draw near because he is one peace for you, and in winning peace for you, he now has a purpose for you in your life. Christ's presence produces his peace, but his presence also provides us with a purpose. Have you ever seen Karate Kid? Mr. Miyagi is the sensei in the Karate Kid movies, and Mr. Miyagi is this fictional character who is most famous for his unconventional training regimen. When Daniel LaRusso comes to Mr. Miyagi after he has saved his life from being beaten up by a bunch of high schoolers, Danny asks him, Daniel asks him to train him, and he's expecting what he's seen in traditional dojos. But when he comes to Mr. Miyagi, he's not given a training regimen that includes weights and dummies and routines and everything else. Instead, he's given what appears to be menial household chores. Wax the car. Wax or sand the floor. Paint the fence. And this goes on for days and days and days and Daniel is exhausted and he finally comes to the breaking point where he loses it with Mr. Miyagi. He questions the the wisdom of his sensei and in that moment Mr. Miyagi shows him that everything that has happened has happened and has served a purpose. And he begins showing him that what he's done is he's trained into him the muscle memory necessary to establish his defense. This, res- this revelation dissolves Daniel's doubts and gives him an unhindered confidence in his sensei. After speaking peace into the emotional chaos of the disciples' heart, Jesus begins to draw them in close and he begins to teach them. And he begins to explain to them that everything that had taken place had happened to fulfill the eternal purposes and plans of God. It didn't take place by accident. And everything that had looked like defeat was actually victory. It was the greatest victory of all time. And just like Mr. Miyagi's mysterious method, there, or methods, there was a higher purpose being fulfilled in Jesus' life, in his death, and now in his resurrection. And just as he taught those two disciples as they were walking along the road to Emmaus, Jesus now begins to explain to his disciples how all of scriptures testified to him, the Messiah, and his ministry, namely his suffering and his death. Throughout the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, in essence, all of the Old Testament scriptures There is testimony to both the victory and the salvation promised by the Messiah, but then also his suffering that it would happen to make that come about. The problem, however, is that these disciples were spiritually blind to the truth that was right in front of them in Scripture. 
There's a double reality when it comes to the Bible. On the one hand, the Bible makes sense. It makes sense. Let's just set aside for a second the miraculous claims of the Bible. And even if we did that, we would conclude that the Bible is not a series of writings that represent the mumblings of a bunch of madmen. Writing on walls and everything else. Instead, what we find is the Bible has beautiful poetry. It has accurate history. It has compelling narrative. It has amazing apocalyptic imagery and so much more. The Bible is a literary work of art. Worthy to be studied. Worthy to be understood. Worthy to be read. Worthy to be taught. However, the Bible is not like any other book. Though all of that is absolutely 100% true, the Bible makes sense. We also know that by its own testimony, the Bible is not merely authored by men. Instead, the Bible is the very word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Bible, is, its own testimony about itself is that it is the revelation of God. As such, it shares spiritual mysteries that only the Lord has the capacity to fully understand. So the Bible's not like some other book that can just simply be studied and understood technically. Instead, the Bible is like the other half of a cosmic conversation in which God must be present to reveal to us what is in front of us that we might fully understand. So when we come to the Scripture, we must come to Scripture with a hunger and a desire not merely to understand the, and parse the meanings of words and, and understand the arc of an argument and understand all of the different implications of the poetry and the literary aspects of what is in front of us. Though all of that is important, what we ultimately must understand is that the Bible is not a book to be mastered by students. It is a book to be a master of students. And so when we come to Scripture, we must submit ourselves in prayer and in humility that God would change us so that we can understand Scripture, not so that God would change His Word so that we can understand it. How do you approach the Word of God? Is it just some monotonous religious ritual that says, I'm supposed to do this, so I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to read it every single day even though I don't comprehend it? Is it an exciting emotional experience that I get to, to just, you know, have this emotional encounter? Is it an, merely an intellectual exercise? Or do you come to the Bible in a humble submission that says, God, I want to meet with you. And I want to hear from you. And I want you to open my eyes and my mind to understand your word. Do you come to the Bible to hear from a father just like a dad speaks to a child. If not, then I invite you to that. Transform how you approach God's word so that God's word will transform you. But Jesus did more in these verses than open the minds of the disciples to understand the mystery of the gospel in the Old Testament. He did prove to them that the ancient promise of the Messiah had been fulfilled according to God's perfect plan, and that perfect plan didn't stop at the resurrection. Instead, if you read in these passages of Scripture, what he says is that it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all of the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And there is the period. 
It's God's eternal plan, not only that Jesus would come, not only that Jesus would die, not only that Jesus would be raised from the dead, not only that he would ascend, but that that message would be preached. And that message to be preached wasn't by the ancient prophets, and it wasn't by Jesus. It was by these men and women cowering in a room because of their fear and their failure. The baton was being handed to them. And they were expected to start where they were. Because they, Jesus says, are the eyewitnesses to these things. And so they were given the purpose to proclaim the gospel of repentance. And they were to start in Jerusalem. And it didn't stop with that first generation of Christians. Instead, it is a self-perpetuating expectation and purpose for every single generation of those who followed after Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you are a follower of Christ, you are one who has turned from yourself and your sin and you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have a purpose that is a part of God's eternal plan from the beginning and will not be completed until the day of Christ's return. And that purpose for you is that you would be his mouthpiece on this earth. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. On in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. When we engage in evangelism and step out on the mission We are standing in the place to be the mouthpiece of God to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ to our generation. Because Christianity is something that you're is not something you are born into. It isn't passed genetically. It isn't guaranteed by either governmental decree or educational instruction in our schools. It's not something that we can program. And that we can force. It's a message of good news that's passed from person to person, from one generation to the next. It's a baton that is in our hand. And it's been said that the gospel, the church, is one generation from extinction. God is faithful to his word. And in being faithful to his word, he's called us to be his mouthpiece in the world. I don't know about you, I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to be the one proclaiming the gospel. And I know that I'm not up to this task. I know that I'm not enough to be the mouthpiece of God. Every time I stand here, I stand here in a complete understanding, God, I don't know why I'm in. I know my faults and I know my failures. I can't do this. And I'm easily overwhelmed and paralyzed by fear and a record of my failure. Which is why we need where this passage goes. Because God doesn't merely just put us out there with a purpose. He promises us the power necessary to do it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and his presence in our life not only produces a peace or provides us with a purpose, we also see in this passage of Scripture that his presence promises us power. A few years ago, Dr. Robbie Gallaty, who's the pastor of Long Hollow Baptist Church down around Nashville, shared a a story that it was about this time of the year, and it was springtime, and he was ready to get out on his farm and do some mowing, and so he ran out there, and he 
uh, got on his, his lawnmower and he cranked it up and he got to go in and he got about a couple of passes done on his yard and immediately all the, the, the thing just died right underneath him. And he kept cranking on it and cranking on it and cranking on it and no matter what it was that he attempted to do, there was not, he just could not get this thing to turn over. And he was frustrated and he was out there for probably 30, 45 minutes trying to figure out what is wrong with this and all of a sudden it dawned on him it was the first day of the year and there wasn't any gas in the tank. And here he was on top of this giant, powerful piece of equipment that was ready and willing to do what was necessary, but there was nothing in the tank. And his challenge to a group of pastors as he shared this story as I sat in that room was there are a lot of you who are sitting on machines. There are a lot of you that are sitting on programs and buildings and people and everything else that you have a powerful engine underneath you. And you have no power because you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. You being collective, not just simply the pastor, but the body of believers themselves. We can have the best programs, the cleanest facilities, the latest technology. We can have the friendliest people, the most purest doctrine, and the most exciting teaching anywhere. But if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we have nothing. We're dead. Dead in the water, brothers and sisters. We'll talk more about the coming of the person of the Holy Spirit in another couple of weeks because we are going to intentionally pay attention to Pentecost this year. And we're going to preach the arrival of the Holy Spirit in this world, but for now we need to see what the presence of Jesus Christ promises us and how we receive that promise. And the promise that Jesus gives to his disciples is that one is coming. You are witnesses, he says in verse 48, and then in verse 49, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. The promise is power, and the power is not some impersonal force. The power is a person who is coming and will fill them and will be with them and will strengthen them. This Holy Spirit is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. He is the one who inspired Scripture in the first place and now is with us to help us interpret the Scripture as we go day by day. He is the one who has the power to interpret our mumblings and our moanings and our groanings and take those moments when we don't even know what to say and turn it into a soliloquy in the presence of God. He's the one who brings life from death. He's the seal of our inheritance. He's our friend in times of need. He's the fuel that is necessary for all of our life. And yet how often we go through our days and we don't even think about him. And we neglect his presence. Year after year, and we in the Baptist circles, because heaven forbid we get a little too charismatic, we don't even pay attention to the day that he came. We'll celebrate Easter all day long, and then we focus on Mother's Day and we forget the ascension of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the descension of the Holy Spirit. We won't do that this year. We're going to celebrate the truth and what it means that Christ ascended and what it means that the Holy Spirit descended. If we don't have him, we don't have anything. So what do we do? All right, God. All right, Christ. 
Here's the power, the power of the Holy Spirit. It's promised to us. What do we got to do? How do, we, how do I sign up? Where do I sign on the dotted line? What do I got to do to get the Holy Spirit? Wait. What? Wait. But wait. Come on, wait. Lord, wait. Wait. That's hard for a bunch of Western Christians who are constantly doing. Who have ear pods and radios and television shows and background noise and microwaves and everything else. We are so used to this running and gunning and doing and it's all right there at our fingertips. I don't even have to get in my car and go to the store anymore. All I got to do is type something in and it's going to come to me. God says, if you wait, I'll come to you. Because all of your striving and your trying and your best efforts will never, never motivate God to move before he's ready. But how often do we miss when God is ready? Because we're busy trying to do it on our own. Wait. How do I wait? Well, I get still before the Lord. I live with an expectation that he is going to be available to me. I gather with my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I seek his face in prayer. That's what we're doing on Sunday nights at 5 o'clock. We're waiting on the Lord. And you're either going to be there and be a part, or you're going to miss it and miss out. We need the power of the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to have it or we're dead in the water. The only way it's going to come is waiting on the presence of, waiting in the presence on the Lord in prayer. Be here Sunday nights at five o'clock so that we can pray for our church, that we can wait in the presence of the Lord, that we can cry out, for wisdom, to show us the next step. Not because it's what we've always done in the past and this is the way that it's worked back then, but because God has a new way and a new age and a new day and new people for us to reach and we won't figure it out on our own. Wait on the presence of the Lord. Collectively and individually. You don't know what you're supposed to do in your life. You don't know what the next step is. Get alone with the Lord. And wait in his presence. Not once, not twice, but as long as it takes. And don't move until you know it's what God wants you to do. And when you do it, get up and get to it. And watch what God will do. Trusting in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now is our time. Now is our chance. To get back into the presence of God by simply waiting and receiving his presence and his power. And so my question as we conclude today is, where are you at? Are you stagnant and stuck because of either your fear or your past failure? Or you're just overwhelmed. You know what, this thing is brand new and I don't know what to do. I'm still in that infancy stages where everything is exciting and everything is new and I just don't have the direction and I don't know what to do. When that winner is called on that stage, what happens? 
As they're stuck in their frozen, stunned silence and they don't know what to do, what happens? The ladies that are next to them draw near. And they begin cheering for her. And they begin encouraging her, step forward, step out, step into this new role, this new title, this new something that you have received. They confirm that word together and they encourage and they push her forward. But because of what Jesus has done, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have something far greater than a title like Miss CHS or Miss America or Mr. USA. We are called sons and daughters of God. And we need the encouragement of one another. You're a child of God. Live like it. You don't have to be afraid. There is no failure that has the ability to undo what Jesus Christ has already done for you. Live out your identity in Christ. Speak and minister the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another in this place. Every single Sunday, every single Sunday night, every single Wednesday night, every single Sunday school, every time you go out to dinner and Sam's functions and student ministries, speak the grace of the truth of the gospel over one another. Because Christ has set us free. His presence brings freedom from all of our fears and all of our failures. But we forget it day in and day out. And we need one another to encourage us and move forward. Let his grace, let his peace wash over you to provide you with a purpose and let his presence give you power to live lives of joy and peace and not fear and failure. Why not just submit to Christ today? Maybe for the first time, because you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you don't know what it is to have his peace in your life. I invite you, just simply cry out to him today. Lord Jesus, would you save me? I'm, I'm going to stop trusting in myself, and I'm going to trust in Christ. And I want to receive from you today your presence and your peace. Are you here, child of God, and you're stunned and you're stuck? Go to the Lord in prayer. And just simply start right here. God, teach me to wait. And come to me, draw near me in my waiting.